0: The following audio is from Norris Ferry Community Church. More information about Norris Ferry Community Church is available at NorrisFerryChurch.org. Good morning. If you got your Bible, we're in the book of Micah again this morning. We were there last week, and it's, uh, it's good to to cover this second theme of the, the book of Micah this morning. My name is Jared. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm over students and missions, and so we are glad that you're here if you're a guest with us, and uh, we'll be in Micah. So last week we covered the justice of God, and it was remember justice, that God is the standard of justice, and that He always acts justly, and that He will restore justice. And so it was kind of a heavy message. The, the prophets afflict the comforted and comfort the afflicted. And so for myself in preaching that and prepping that, then the Lord was in a lot of ways afflicting me of my comfortableness um, to, to motivate me to be a voice for justice. And so I pray that this morning, um, again, that as we look at this and our topic is remember the mercy of God, that for some of you it will comfort, for some of you it may afflict a little, and I hope then it comforts you as well. And so we will be in Micah, but let's pray before we begin. God, thank you so much just for the opportunity to gather with a group of people to open your word, to to seek you, Lord, that you would speak to us, Lord, that we would hear from you. God, that we would get a glimpse of who you are and and of the things which you, you call us to. God, we know that if we see you more clearly, it changes us. God, that, that when we understand you and see you and hear from you, Lord, that, that it calls us to further walk with you. And it calls us to trust you. And it calls us to, to be a greater picture and an image to this world of who you are. God, so we ask that you would meet with us this morning. We we pray that you would speak to us, God, that you would give us eyes and ears, that you would give us a heart to do the things which your word calls us to, God, that we might glorify you. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. So I wanted to give you a little bit of history about who I am. Um, I grew up in Norman, Oklahoma, and uh, grew up in a church home, right? And so I was at church a lot. I was what I tell the youth kids, I was a church rat. Like I knew how to get to the snacks in the church wherever they were hidden. Even if they were locked up, like I knew how to get there. And so I was a church rat. I was in church a lot. And being in church, then I, I learned a lot about who God was and about the scriptures. And I had learned a lot of morality. And so I had figured out that I could get the things I wanted by being a good kid. Right? And so, rather than rebelling, I was the good kid. I could get what I wanted from the teachers by being the teacher's pet. I could get what I wanted from my parents by being obedient and compliant in that I got more things that way than being rebellious. And so, I had figured out that my way of getting what I wanted was by being the good kid. And so, I was the good kid. And people told me that a lot. Like, oh, he's a good kid. He's a good kid. But... I really wasn't that good of a kid. I was a selfish kid, and I'm still a selfish kid, right? Just ask my wife. But I had learned that I could meet this cultural moral standard that was expected of me, and that as I met that, then I was praised for it. In fourth grade, I uh, prayed a prayer that sounded something like this, God, I don't want to go to hell, will you save me? And then the next night, it was like, God, if I didn't mean it last night, I really mean it tonight. And then the next night was, God, if I didn't mean it the last two nights, I really, really, really mean it tonight. And it was all based on the fact of, I didn't want to go to hell. I didn't love Jesus. I just didn't want to go to hell. And so I had learned what hell was from the scripture. I had Sunday school teachers that taught me that. I had heard, like, if you want to go spend eternity with God and your mommy and daddy in heaven, then pray this prayer. Right? But like, it wasn't because I loved Jesus. It wasn't because I was convicted of my sin. It wasn't that I was in need of a Savior. It was that there's a consequence I don't want, and I'd rather this. And so I prayed, God save me. I don't want to go to hell. But there was no assurance. There was no confidence. There was no fruit change. There was, there was nothing that changed in my life. And I think the biggest part of that was there was no assurance. And so then I got to my junior year of high school, and my junior year of high school came. I was still the good kid. I was still art and wrestling and involved with friends and church and all these different things in my youth group. And, and the opportunity for sin became much greater. And the pull of sin became much greater. I got some wheels, which meant I could hide things from mom and dad. And I was in this place where the Holy Spirit started to weigh in on me on my sin. Where I felt shame and guilt. I didn't like it. But yet, it looked like what my friends were doing was fun. And so I was in this place where I had guilt and shame over sin, but yet I was pulled and drawn to the things of the world and to the things that, that my friend group and the people around me were doing. So I was in this place where I had to decide, like, where am I going to go? And so it was at that point that I just started to read the Word of God. Because I was like, if it's true, it's worth everything. But if it's not, then I'm going to quit feeling guilty and shame, and I'm going to go live like them, because it looks fun. And so I just started to pour over the Word of God. I started to read the Word of God as a junior in high school, and just started to read and read and read and read. And it was through the reading of the Word that God was so merciful to me, that That he drew me to himself. That my junior year, I came to a place of seeing my need for Christ as my Savior. And so I began to see that I really wasn't the good kid that everybody said I was. That deep down in my heart, I knew who I was, and God knew who I was. And that I had offended a holy God and was in need of a Savior, that I couldn't save myself, that I needed mercy. And so it was my junior year, and so that set the trajectory of my life. But I got to college, and I still wrestled with this reality of I was a pretty good kid. And I had a lot of pride because of that. Because my sin didn't look like theirs, and and I could hide it better than them. and, And I was prideful. And so I prayed a prayer that God would show me my sin and my wickedness, which is a very dangerous prayer, that God would show you the depth of your wickedness and the reality of your heart, your intentions. And and part of that was what happened when I went to a conference called the Desiring God Conference. It was 2006, and I went, and there was a speaker named Votie Bauckham, and he was speaking about the evil of the world. And and he was talking about these college students will come to him, and they've got like one semester of philosophy, which he says you should never be able to talk about philosophy if you only have one semester of philosophy. Like you're better off just not having philosophy at all. And so he's like, people, these college students will come, and, and they're like, well, tell me, if God is so good and so powerful and omniscient and all-knowing and like all these things, then why is there evil? Why does he not stop it? Why does he allow evil in the world? That's the age-old question, right? And so Bodhi, in his preaching, he just said, what I tell them is that I'm not going to answer your question until you ask it the right way. To which they look at him like, what do you mean? It's my question. I can ask it however I want. And he's like, well, then I'm not answering it until you ask it the correct way. So, well, how should I ask it? He said, here's how you should ask that question. How can God be all-knowing, all-powerful, know what you did yesterday and what you thought yesterday and not have killed you in your sleep. Whoa. Whoa. It was a wake-up call for me of that I had been looking at God from my standard, that I had been assuming upon the mercy of God from my point of view that I was a pretty good person, that I was culturally, morally good, But when it was phrased like that, that God knows my thoughts and intentions, that he knows the secrets which no one else knows, then I knew that I had no ground to stand on, to claim my moral excellence before a holy God had no merit, that I hadn't earned anything from God, but that I was fully at his mercy. As I began to read the scripture, part of that was that I began to see Israel in the Old Testament. And, and I used to ask the question, why in the world would God continue to fight for unrighteous, wicked, unfaithful, rebellious Israel? Why in the world? would Why not just start over, God? Like, these people obviously can't get it. Just move on. Why would God continue to fight for them? It's because of His mercy. It's because of His mercy. I want to show you three truths out of the book of Micah about God's mercy this morning. If you've got your Bible open, it's Micah chapter 4. It's where we're going to start, and I want to read the majority of this chapter, and then we'll unpack it, and we'll spend a little bit of time in Micah chapter 7 as well. But here's Micah chapter 4, verse 1, says this. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord Shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills. The peoples shall flow to it, and many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk his paths. Now, it's important to know that there's these cycles that are happening in Micah where he gives judgment and then he gives salvation and then he gives judgment and then he gives salvation and then he gives judgment and then he gives salvation. There's three cycles of this. And so Mike has already prophesied over Israel that you are going to be exiled. That you are going to be sent out. You are going to be destroyed. That the mountain of Zion, that the mountain of the Lord is going to be brought low. And so here is the salvation part of chapter 4. That it shall come to pass that in the latter days, a future day, a future day, that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. That this is not your destiny. To be exiled And to be a scattered people, this is not your destiny, but that the Lord will restore. And so, verse 2 says, And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord and the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths.' For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide for strong nations afar off that they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the peoples walk, each in the name of its God, but we walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Now catch this, verse 6. In that day, declares the Lord, in this future day when when everything will be restored, in this future day, this day coming where the Lord's going to rebuild this mountain, in this future day, he says, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away And those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make the remnant. And those who are cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion. From this time forth and forevermore. Now catch this. This is the first point. The mercy of God is for those in need. The mercy of God is for those in need. Micah here has prophesied that there is a day coming where the Lord will restore and rebuild. And then he goes on to tell the people how the Lord is going to do that. What is he going to do? He's going to gather a people. Now, when I think of dodgeball teams and basketball teams, or ultimate Frisbee teams, or soccer teams, when you just play outside, then, then you set the two best athletes, right? That's normally what happens when you've got the two best athletes, and then they pick their team. Now, they normally pick from greatest ability to least, right? Because you want to win. Y'all following me? Like, you pick teams because you want to win. And so the people that you pick are the biggest, the fastest, the strongest, the best athletes. But that's not what God does. God doesn't say, hey, in later days, I'm going to pick those of you who have pulled yourself up by your bootstraps. I'm going to pick those of you who are the strongest and who have survived. I'm going to weed out the weak and the marginalized, and I'm going to have the strongest. This is my process of that. No, no, no. The Lord says, in that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame. The outcasts of society. I will gather those who have been driven away. Verse 7, he says, and the lame, I will make the remnant. That the lame, the needy are the ones that the Lord chooses. Now, why in the world does the Lord do this? Well, it's what He's done from the very beginning. Because when the best athletes are picked for the team, everybody goes, oh yeah, I know why they won. But when God uses the lame and the outcast and the afflicted, then everybody looks at the team and goes, how in the world... They have a good God. They have a good God. That mercy is for the needy. It's not for those who have no need. But that it's for the needy, the weak, the wounded, the scattered. They're in need of someone to act on their behalf. Despite their rebellious actions. Chapter verse six says that that those who the Lord has afflicted that. God is in this process because of their pride and arrogance that they are being brought so low that they will have no merit to boast in their own works. That they will be fully dependent upon the mercy of God. That they can't claim any righteousness of their own. But that they will be humbled. And it's in that humility that the mercy of God meets us. It's in the place of need that the mercy of God comes close. That mercy is for the needy. You don't earn mercy. It's actually the opposite of what mercy is. Mercy is given. You can't earn it. Jesus said it like this in Luke 18. It says he also told this parable to some of those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Now catch that. Jesus is telling this parable to people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. That they had their own righteousness, which was based on their own merit. And Jesus tells them this. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, Or even like this tax collector, I fast twice a week. I give tithes to all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But he beat his his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted That mercy is for the needy. That mercy isn't for the self-righteous and prideful, but that it is for those in need. The Lord is merciful to the needy. Look at chapter 7, verse 9. This is what it looks like, Micah's need. Micah cries out to the Lord in chapter 7, verse 9. He says, I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him. He understands his need. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I'm guilty. Because I have sinned against him. I don't have to excuse my sin anymore. I don't have to hide from my sin anymore. I can be honest that I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out of the light. I shall look upon his vindication because he is merciful to the needy. Number two, I want you to see out of the book of Micah here that the mercy of God is manifest through his King. The mercy of God is manifest through his king. Flip back to chapter 4. As we continue to read this section, pick up on verse 7. It says, "In the lame I will make the remnant, and those who were cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion, from this time forth and forevermore. And you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come. The former dominion shall come. Kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. Now, that word kingship right there is important. Kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem because for Israel, then the king was vitally important because God had made a covenant with their king. With King David, then God had said that through you, I will give you a son who will sit on the throne eternally. And so Micah has prophesied to Israel that they are going to be scattered, that they're going to be exiled. And then he says, but there's a future day when I will rise up this mountain and I will give to the daughter of Jerusalem a king. But verse 9 hits us. Now, why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? That when Israel is exiled, their king will be conquered. Their king is removed. Israel actually had a king. that's eyes were plucked out. They were taken into captivity. They were removed from the throne. And so Israel has no king. And so all of a sudden it hits them. Now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished? That pain seized you like a woman in labor. Now, 50% of us in this room understand what he just said. Right? I won't say which 50%, but it's got to be something like the man flu. Right? That this pain... This pain has just come upon them in a sudden rush. That all of a sudden, they go from thinking, oh, God is with us, God is near us, God is here, to we're going to be exiled, and our king is gone. And they go, if we don't have a king, what about God's promise? What about our future? If we don't have a king, what do we have? And there's pain and there's anguish. Verse 10: writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor, for now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country, and you shall go to Babylon. Micah is prophesying about Israel being captured and taken into captivity by Babylon. Which comes to happen. This is all Micah prophesying about what is to come. He's telling Israel. And so the reality of what is happening is hitting them. And he says, writhe and groan. Because you're going to be scattered. You're going to to dwell in the open country. And you shall go to Babylon. But catch this last part of the verse. There's hope. There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. That you're going to be scattered, but again, this is not your destiny. That God is working. That there you shall be rescued. And so we ask the question, how? If they don't have a king, who will rescue them? And God comes through. Look at chapter 5, verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, you are too little to be among the clans of Judah, But from you shall come forth for me one who will be ruler in Israel, whose origin is from old, from ancient of days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of the brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Did you catch that? That God is going to raise up another king. He is going to raise up a king from the line of David through Bethlehem. Does it remind you of anyone? Hosea says it like this in Hosea 3.5, afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord, their God, and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to His goodness in the latter days. Amos 9/11 says it like this: "In that day I will rise, I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen, and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old." And then we get to the New Testament. Luke chapter one, verse 32 and 33, says it like this: "He will be great. And he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And to his kingdom there will be no end. You see, God is going to raise up a king for his people. And his mercy is manifest in this king. Because it will be this king... Who will redeem, who will restore, who will protect. It's a shepherd king is what it is. And so if we continue to read, then then it says that verse four, and they shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth and he shall be their peace. Catch this when the Assyrians come into our land and tread in our places, then We will rise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men, and they shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our borders. That there is restoration because of this king. If you flip back to chapter 4, then again we get this picture of what God is doing, that he is going to raise up a king who will be the mercy to the people because he will restore, redeem, gather, feed, and protect. Look at verse 11 of chapter 4. It says, Now many nations are assembled against you, saying, Let her be defiled, and let her her eyes gaze upon Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan, that he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron and I will make your hooves bronze. You shall beat in pieces many peoples and shall devote their gain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. That God is going to raise up a king who will be the manifestation of his mercy, who will rule and reign for those who are lame and outcast and far off he will gather. To those who are opposed to him in pride and arrogance, he will crush. His justice and his mercy go hand in hand. He does not lay aside his justice in order to be merciful. And he does not lay aside his mercy in order to be just. He is just and merciful. And to those who see him for who he is and who follow him in faith, he is merciful. His mercy is made manifest through his king. God will gather, protect, feed, and bring peace. Did you catch that at the end of at the beginning of verse 5? It says and he shall be their peace. In the midst of chaos, in the midst of exile, in the midst of all of these things there will be a king who will arise who will be their peace. Do you know the king? Do you know God's mercy? His name is Jesus Christ. And he came and he paid the price that he would be the just and the justifier. But it's in him that we find mercy. It's in the reality that he will provide and protect. That he will shepherd and feed. Do you know that king? You see, I was reading some stuff about discipling men and with younger generations and things like that, and and there's this overwhelming sense of the reality that, that this younger generations feel this need to be perfect. We saw it uh, displayed at camp when we went to camp, and they did a little display of a little skit where they had people stand up when the guy um, would say a certain sin or a certain thing that you struggle with, and you would stand up and And when he said, do you have a desire or do you have this overwhelming weight that you have to be perfect, then like 90% of the room stood up. It was unbelievable. That there's this weight that we've got to be perfect. And some of that may come through social media. Who knows that everybody puts out this perfect world. Some of that may just be these new temptations. I don't know. But this weight that we've got to be perfect. And so the reality is that there's a lot of shame because we know we can't be perfect. And so there's guilt and shame that, that I can't be perfect. I can't measure up. And I've, that's the expectation for me, and I can't measure up. And so what do I do? Well, it's not even worth trying. But do you know the king of mercy? Who, like Micah, you can say, I've sinned, and I will bear the indignation of the Lord that I have offended you, that I have rebelled against you, that I haven't been perfect. But that the king of mercy leans in and he says, I know. That's why I did it for you. I know. That's why I did it. Because you couldn't do it. I did what you couldn't. Now come. Come to me. Follow me. The king of mercy is manifest in Jesus Christ. That we would know Him and cling to Him. Third, we see that the mercy of God is assured for those who are in Christ. Chapter 7, verses 18 through 20. The mercy of God is assured for those who are in Christ. Listen to this. It says, Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgressions for the remnant of his inheritance? Who is a God? Did you catch that? He's like, Mike is like, who's a God like you? There's no one like you, God. Who just passes over, pardons iniquity, passes over transgressions? Who does that? No one does that. He's like, who's a God like you? He does not retain his anger forever. Because he delights in steadfast love, that word can be translated mercy. He delights in mercy. He doesn't stay angry forever because he delights in mercy. It brings him joy. It's not that he does it begrudgingly. It brings him joy. He delights in it. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. But catch this, this is where it all comes to assurance. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Micah's confidence is in the promises of God made to Abraham and Jacob and to the fathers in days of old. That God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That the promises he made in Genesis to Adam and Eve, to Abraham, he's still keeping today. That those who were in Christ will find mercy from the king. He's still keeping that promise. See, because if God shows mercy, but he doesn't keep his promises, we're in trouble, right? Right? Okay, he shows mercy, but who knows when or where or how. But the scriptures tell us and Micah tells us that those who are in Christ, those who find mercy, who seek mercy in his king, he will be merciful too. That it's promised. He always will do that. Look at verse 20 again. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. All of the confidence comes from the fact that God keeps his promises. But we get to the New Testament and we get even more, right? That when Jesus ascended to the Father, he said, it's better for me to go because I'm going to send a helper, which is going to be a promise to you that I'm coming back. We get the promise that God is going to continue in this. That he will continue to show mercy to all those who cry out to him. That we have this assured promise that God is merciful to those in Christ. It's our confidence, right? No matter how far off you've walked, that if you come back to Christ, God will be merciful. But here's the cool thing is that he's coming after you. He's chasing you down. You were the one that went off. And he's chasing you down and saying, I want to be merciful to you. Oh, would you know his mercy? So I wonder the prophets afflict the comforted and comfort the afflicted. If you're self righteous and you hear this message, then you go, Well, why would God continue? They didn't do anything to deserve that. You're right. You're right. They didn't. And neither did you. But you think you did. And that's what's got you wrong. But if you're afflicted, then you hear this and you go, oh, I needed that. Oh, I needed to be reminded that no matter how far I've gone, that I can bring it into the light. I can admit it. To Christ. And he goes, paid for. Righteous. Redeemed. I've got good plans for you. I've got big plans for you. I've got a plan to use you. I'm I'm not done with you. I haven't abandoned you. I've got a plan for you. The mercy of God is assured to those who are in Christ. The last application I want to. Give you this is that Micah chapter six, verse eight. He says, he has told you, a man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness or mercy and to walk humbly with your God. It's kind of the summary. It's kind of this packaging of what who God is and what he requires of those who follow him to do justice, to act justly. That's what we covered last week. To love mercy and to walk humbly with Him. You see, when we've experienced the mercy of God, we will be merciful to others. James talks about it that mercy triumphs over judgment in the sense that when we've experienced the mercy of God, then we live as merciful people to others. Tim Keller in his book, The Gospel in Life, says this. A merely religious person who believes God will favor him because of his morality and respectability will ordinarily have contempt for the outcast. I worked hard to get where I am, and so can anyone else. That's the language of the moralist heart. It's the language of the self-righteous, like the Pharisee. I earned it, and anybody else can work as hard as I can, and that's why I'm here. But, I'm only where I am by the sheer unmerited mercy of God. I'm completely equal with all other people. That's the language of the Christian heart. A sensitive social conscience and a life poured out in the deeds of mercy to the needy is the inevitable sign of a person who has grasped the doctrine of God's grace and mercy. You see, when we understand it, it begins to flow out of us. Because what Christ has poured in will flow out. Are you merciful? Are you a merciful person? If you're not, have you experienced God's mercy? If you've experienced God's mercy, it will flow out of you. To be a merciful person, that's the whole book of Micah, that there was injustice and God said, God is just and you ought to be just. And God is merciful, and you ought to be merciful. Let's pray. God, when we ask the question, why would you continue to go after, to chase after, to redeem, to forgive, to use Israel after so many failures? We see that the answer is because of your mercy. And God, when we ask the question, why would you continue to fight for unrighteous, wicked, sinful, rebellious sinners like me? It's because of your mercy. God, I pray that we would grasp the mercy that you've poured out for us. That you offer us in your King and that you assure us through your promises. God, I pray that Norris Ferry, that this church would be known as just and merciful people. God, that this community would know the members of this church because of their justice and because of their mercy. God, but in order to do that, we know we have to pull from a well of your justice and your mercy. God, that we need to experience that fresh every day. That we need to be reminded of that daily. That you are just and you are merciful. God, would you make us into those people that we might reflect you to this world. That others might find hope in who you are and what you offer. God, that we would live grateful lives and be a display to the world of what it looks like to be a Christian. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Norris Ferry Community Church, located in Shreveport, Louisiana. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Norris Ferry Community Church, please visit us online at norrisferrychurch.org.